It's a pleasure to be with you all this afternoon. I hope to be with you live later on to do a Q&A. I want to start by thanking you all for inviting me to speak and thank you also for the interest you've shown in my work. I'm very encouraged to know that the book I wrote on the human self is proving helpful to people, particularly to pastors and those who are at the front line of the, the human cost of the era of identity politics and sexual revolution through which we are living. What I want to do this afternoon is, is offer just a thin slice of my argument in that book, touching on really one of the key issues, and, and that is how is it that sexual desire, or desire in general, but sexual desire in particular, has become so central to human identity? It's interesting that the German philosopher Rudiger Savransky refers to the notion that sex is identity, that sexual ideal, uh, sexual desire is identity, is the great fiction of our contemporary era, that it is the thing that is most false about the time in which we live. And you as pastors and, and myself as a college professor, we're acutely aware of, of how that is the case and how much confusion and how much damage has been sown by that. So what I want to trace today is is a genealogy, really, of how desire becomes identity, then how sexual desire becomes identity. And finally, I want to offer some biblical reflections to see how that tracks with aspects of the biblical narrative and throw out some thoughts as to how the church might respond. I make no claim whatsoever to be able to articulate a particularly profound policy for the church in this. Uh, I can simply offer a few thoughtful suggestions that, that will hopefully provoke you, stimulate you to think about how you might address the situation in your own particular context. So let's turn to the narrative then. First thing I want to do is reflect upon how desire becomes identity. Well, to lay some sort of general background, my, my basic thesis is this, that desire as identity is a, a specific function of the kind of selves that we now imagine ourselves to be. The normative notion of the self, the normative notion of thinking of what, about what it means to be a human being might be summed up by saying that today we all think of ourselves as expressive individuals. Expressive individualism characterizes our world characterizes the way we think about ourselves and the way we imagine ourselves to be in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Expressive individualism is a view of human personhood, a view of human selfhood that has a number of aspects that are of significance. One, places a priority on our inner psychological space, that we are who we feel we are. The most important thing about us is our feelings. And understanding those feelings and being able to express those feelings is critical to being authentic, fulfilled selves. Happiness, if you like. Happiness is the key. Psychological happiness is the key to human flourishing. It's the key to living the good life. It's a key to being fulfilled. Whereas, for example, for my grandfather's generation, perhaps being fulfilled meant putting shoes on his children's feet, putting bread on the table for my generation and the generations younger than me, 
It means feeling happy, feeling psychologically content, feeling, we might say, well-adjusted. Those are the things that constitute our happiness and our flourishing. And this has an impact on the way we relate to the world and to others around us. It tilts us, it, it points us, it, it, it makes us tend towards seeing other people and other things, particularly other people, in, I would say, an adversarial light. Other people function best, first and foremost, when I'm persuaded that they will make me feel happier. In other words, when I meet somebody, when I strike up a conversation with somebody, when I start a relationship with somebody, the key thing in my mind is, will this person make me feel happier? And that has a kind of adversarial feel. The idea that, well, other people might always potentially be a threat to my happiness. My individual happiness, my individual satisfaction, that's the key thing. Everybody else has value to me to the extent that they are able to play into that kind of happiness for which I am seeking. And the world is good to the extent that it meets my needs. The world is there not for me to fit into and serve the world. The world is there, if you like, for, for me to exploit in order that I might make myself feel happy. We see this uh, ethically. Think about abortion. Abortion assumes that the embryo in the woman's womb is just stuff. It has no rights. It has no personhood. It has no selfhood. It's just stuff. It's a lump of cells. You may have heard that phrase, just a clump of cells. And then the morality of abortion in that context becomes, will bringing that baby to term bring more happiness or more sadness into the woman's life? Notice what's going on there. The baby in the womb and the mother are placed in an adversarial position because supreme in the mother's notion of selfhood is, will this clump of cells bring me happiness or bring me sadness? And there is, you know, abortion is legitimate if evacuating the cells from the womb, removing the cells, destroying the baby in the womb actually leads to a net gain in happiness for the woman concerned. So that's a, a small example there of how uh, expressive individualism shapes a moral question. No-fault divorce. Think of how expressive individualism affects our understanding of divorce. No-fault divorce is predicated, presupposes the idea that marriage is a voluntary contract whose purpose is the mutual happiness of the two people involved. And once one or both parties cease to be happy, once my wife ceases to make me feel good, then I have no obligation to her beyond that. I can dissolve that relationship for no reason at all. I don't have to tell the state any reason. No fault divorce. I can simply say it isn't working for us anymore. We're not being made happy. We can dissolve the relationship. Notice in that, of course, no reference to children. Children have no say in, in no fault divorce. Their collateral damage to be dealt with after the divorce has been approved. They too, in other words, find themselves in an adversarial position with their parents because to take the children's feelings into, advance, into a, a, a advanced consideration in a divorce might inhibit the parents 
from getting out of this marriage that isn't making them happy anymore. Notice the notion of the self underlying the notion of the self underlying those scenarios is an autonomous one, a selfish one in every sense of the word, unencumbered by natural commitments to others. The self is assumed to be naturally free, naturally independent, and to enter into relationships only to the extent that those relationships make the self feel good about itself. Now, the history of that is it's long and it's complicated. It's rooted uh, in part in the crisis of external and institutional authority at the Reformation. The Reformation, as it breaks down traditional authority structures in Europe, places a huge amount of responsibility on the shoulders of the individual. The individual starts to emerge as the, like, the single most important unit in society at that point. And that's followed by what is often called by intellectual historians the, the inward turn, an increasing focus on inward psychology. We see it from the point of view of epistemology. How do we know things in the work of somebody like Descartes? Descartes is the one who goes inward to find out, is there anything I can be certain of? Well, thought, doubt, doubt. My doubt means that I have to be certain of my own existence. Notice he's moved inwards. He doesn't find certainty by looking outward to the authority of the church or even to the stability of the material universe. He looks inward to his own psychology and realizes, if I doubt, then I'm conscious of doubting. And if I'm conscious of doubting, then I must exist. We also find it manifesting itself in uh, political form. Uh, think of Rousseau and his notion of the noble savage, the idea that uh, a man is born free and everywhere is in chains and all relationships are contractual and voluntary, therefore. It's complete nonsense, of course. No man is born free. No woman is born free. We are born absolutely in chains, completely dependent upon others, upon our parents or upon who's ever standing in the place of our parents for our survival, for being fed. If a woman gives birth to a child and leaves him in the woods, the child is dead, probably within 48, 72 hours. Hypothermia, dehydration, killed by wild animals. We are born not free, but very, very dependent. Just because an idea is false, though, doesn't mean it isn't appealing enough to us for us to try to build whole philosophies of life and whole societies upon it. That is the case with Rousseau. We might think of Locke. Uh, how does Locke define uh, human beings, really, in terms of inalienable rights? We as individuals have rights, and there's much to be said for that. I think we do have rights as individuals, but we also have responsibilities. We have responsibilities to others that really require what we might call a sacrifice of the self in order to be fulfilled. The parent who gets up at three o'clock in the morning because their child is crying because the child's ill or merely just hungry or, or merely just crying. If you've been a parent, you know, sometimes kids just cry. The child, the parent who gets up to comfort them is sacrificing something of themselves. And rightly so, because the child is dependent upon them and they have a natural obligation towards their child. So that's the, the, the first sort of strand of it. To understand how desire has become identity, we need to understand it's a function in part of 
of how we imagine ourselves to be autonomous and defined by our inner space. It's also connected to a view of the self that regards the world as raw material. This has been developing over a, a long period of time, but we see it in Descartes. In Descartes, Descartes is certain of his own existence, but he tends on the whole to look at the world out there as raw material, the stuff that is there for the scientist to subjugate, to manipulate. You can think of Karl Marx in the 19th century, Marx's radical materialism. Uh, Marx uh, denies that there's any intrinsic significance, moral significance to matter. Uh, he sees uh, matter, matter significance in lying in how human beings treat it, what we make of it. Human beings give matter its decisive significance. There is no moral shape to the world. There's no moral, absolute moral shape to human nature that requires human beings behave in a certain way to flourish. Human nature is just a historical product. It's always changing. So for Marx, the world is, if you like, he's another thing. The world is raw material. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche's not a Marxist in any way, stretch or form, but Nietzsche too sees the world as just stuff. For Nietzsche, morality is a manipulative fiction, a mystification created by the weak in order to subjugate, subvert the powerful. And lying behind that is Nietzsche's idea that the world has no moral shape. Human nature has no moral shape. It's there as a kind of cosmic Play-Doh to be manipulated, subjected to our wills in whatever way we choose. And I want to suggest that these ideas, expressive individualism, and the idea that human beings are autonomous, willing beings in a world which is made up of just raw material, of just stuff, these have come to shape our intuitions. Now, you might object and say, well, Truman, very few people have read Nietzsche today. Very few people have read Rousseau. Certainly the people that I speak to down my street, many of the people in my congregation, they've never even heard of these people. How are they shaped and influenced by them? Well, I think the answer is that the ideas that these elite intellectuals have have become the common intuitions of us all because they correlate so precisely with the things in our world that shape our imaginations. Think about consumerism. Think about the philosophy, if you like, that is quietly and subtly preached from every commercial you ever watch. Consumerism is predicated, it's built upon a future-oriented myth that possession of the next thing will bring happiness, will bring that psychological sense of well-being. Your ability to be happy lies within your will. And here's where it gets, you know, connects to the topic of this lecture. What consumerism does is it creates desires <clears throat> and then tells you that fulfilling those desires will make you happy, will make you flourish, will make you truly you. Think about politics. Politics today has become saturated with psychological and therapeutic notions, the kind that we saw at the heart of expressive individualism, with a Nietzschean twist, with a Nietzschean twist, an emphasis sort of on the manipulative nature of language. But how much of our politics today is really preoccupied with 
making people feel good, making sure that nobody uses a word that upsets somebody. Nobody disagrees with an identity that somebody wishes to assert they possess, because to do that is to oppress them. It's to hurt them. It's in some, you know, to use extreme language, it's to put them in danger. It's to make people feel unsafe. This is the sort of language that arises out of expressive individualism. And it shapes our politics and it shapes the way both left and right think about political discussions. Think about technology. Technology shapes our imaginations. One of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about technology is it helps us to do the same things only faster and more efficiently. That's not the case. Technology fundamentally reshapes our relationship to the world. Think about travel. My experience of immigration in an era of mass, fast, efficient travel is very different to the experience of immigration that the Pilgrim Fathers would have had in the 17th century. When I said goodbye to my parents in 2001, when I immigrated, I knew I was going to see them again within a year. I knew I was going to speak to them again within 48 hours. Mass transport shapes the way we think about geography, space, time, etc. Space becomes smaller because we can move faster. We don't experience space in the same way that our ancestors did. Think about the internet. All of the information at our fingertips. We no longer have to go to libraries. We no longer have to wait to learn things. We can get it instantly. We no longer have to wait for the news program in the evening to find out what's going on in the world. We no longer have to call our financial advisors to see how our pension funds are going. Our experience of the world has been fundamentally transformed by technology. Think of music. 200 years ago, to experience music, it had to be live. You had to be there. And you either had to be producing it or in the presence of somebody who was producing it. Now we experience music primarily as an individual activity. I drive to work and I listen to music. I put my headphones on. I listen to music privately by myself. The experience of music, the way I imagine music, is now very different to the way it was. Think about abortion. Abortion is absolutely dependent upon the technological revolution. Think about transgenderism. It's only because technology says that a man can become a woman and offers us hormones and surgeries that make it look as if it might happen, that it becomes plausible, that it gains ground. hundred years ago, if you'd gone to your doctor and said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, he'd have had no choice other than to say, it's a problem with your mind. We need to treat your mind. Now he can pump you full of hormones, subject you to surgery. Now he can gerrymander your hormonal makeup or your physical makeup in a way that makes transgenderism plausible. As my friend Michael Hanby, Catholic philosopher, says, the technological revolution has made possible the sexual revolution. In fact, the sexual revolution is only possible because of the technological revolution. And technology, of course, reinforces that idea that the world is raw material to be shaped according to our wills, not simply physically, but morally too. For example, think of traditional sexual morality. Early 19th century, you're a teenage guy. You want to have a sexual relationship with a girl. Well, what do you got to do? You've got to be 
clean, you've got to have a job, you've got to impress her, you've got to impress her parents. Because there are consequences to having sex with this girl that may be pregnant, you know, she may get pregnant. You might have her dad and her brothers coming after you. You could get into real trouble. It's a lifetime commitment, high risk. Once you introduce contraception, abortion, antibiotics to deal with unfortunate diseases, it becomes more plausible to be promiscuous. It becomes more plausible to think of sex as a recreational activity where the consequences of breaking the rules are dramatic and virtually unavoidable, it's pretty easy for the morality, the strict traditional morality, to remain credible. Once you can break the rules and get away with it easily, cheaply, continuously, those rules become less plausible. And we might look at examples of how that's come to grip the imagination about sex. Think of the sex crisis of the 80s. Uh, the solution ultimately offered was technological. It was contraceptive, it was condoms, and it was drugs, AZT and things like that. Even in the gay community, gay people who suggested that toning down promiscuity that not engaging in wild, rampant sex with whomever you wanted might have been a good move in the AIDS crisis. The gay men who suggested that, they were anathematized. Why? Because sex isn't moral. Sex is technical. And therefore, if sex creates a problem, we need a technical solution. That's made possible by the scientific revolution. Technology feeds our belief in the world's moral shapelessness and our sovereignty. The German philosopher Heidegger makes the comment that the most dangerous thing about technology is not that it will produce what we would now call weapons of mass destruction. It, will not, it is not that it will make it possible to wipe the human race off the face of the earth. It's that it will totally dehumanize us in a way that is utterly destructive of who we actually are. So, technology reinforces the idea that the world is just stuff. Things like consumerism reinforce the idea that the fulfillment of what it means to be human is a fulfillment of our desires. And this occurs, of course, at a time in history where three of the traditional institutions that gave us external identity, family, nation, church, synagogue, mosque, whichever uh, religious institution one looks at, family, nation and religious institutions have become incredibly weak. Can't go into detail, I'm sure you're aware of, of how this has happened, but notice the role of technology in weakening the family. When was the last time you saw a, a successful holiday mo Hollywood movie that pointed to the family as one of the key solutions to society's ills? I can't think of one, not one that was a commercial success anyway. Think of how TikTok and YouTube, in, particularly in the trans movement, are beginning to supplant parental and school authority in shaping how young people think about gender. Think about the nation. Think about how the ease of international use, the ease of being able to identify with people in other countries is reshaping how we think of nationhood and nationality. I was very interested in 2021 when, <clears throat> sorry, 2020, 
during the George Floyd riots. They had George Floyd riots and protests in Britain at the same time as there was a crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was a British colony until 1997. Other than the Chinese community, I didn't notice in the newspapers any protests recorded about the crackdowns in Hong Kong. George Floyd gripped the imagination of the British people more thoroughly than Hong Kong did. Why? Because his story was there and accessible on the internet in a dramatic way, in a way that Hong Kong was old news, technology, reshaping how people think about their identity relative to their nation and the history of their nation. Think of the 1619 Project. I'm not interested here in saying whether I agree or disagree with the 1619 Project. The fact that it exists is interesting. The fact that it exists indicates that the traditional narrative of national identity, and nations are built on narratives, is in crisis. Lots of people don't believe it anymore. The nation is incredibly weak, and the church. The church is just, I mean, it's destroying itself from internal corruption and external pressure. The church is no longer a strong source of identity. Many of these things, of course, are anticipated in the biblical narrative. Think about Genesis 3. Think about the fall. Think about the way Eve's psychology is described in the fall. So when the woman, we're told, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It's a story with which we're very familiar. What's interesting is that some of the things that I've talked about so far in this lecture can be found in that particular passage. The fall is characterized by three things, I think. Eve's uh, reasoning is characterized by three things. Firstly, it's characterized by what I would call a focus on aesthetics, outward appearance. It looks beautiful. Her desire was stimulated, driven, motivated by the beautiful look of the fruit, outward appearance, gripped her imagination. God had spoken to her by words. Words come through the ear. She is mesmerized by the look. Secondly, notice that technical ability drives out, uh, drives moral possibility. She can reach out and take the fruit because she knows she does. So why should she not? She's able to do this, say when she can eat from any other tree of the garden. Why shouldn't she do this? Well, that's when the third thing kicks in. She views the created world as being there for her personal benefit, as having no moral shape at this point, but as serving her own psychological feeling, her own mental well-being. It's going to fill her belly. She's going to feel good. She's going to feel like God. That's what the serpent tells her. And so she reaches out and the language is very strong, of course. She takes. She takes. And notice, I would say that we could recast that in the language of, of, of my argument today and say, what she's doing here is asserting an identity. Asserting a different identity, the one that God give her, given her, for sure, but asserting an identity. Her desire and then action deny the objective moral shape of the universe. She, 
will decide what is moral based on her needs. Her desire and action assert her own sovereign freedom. She is free. God's command is a chain stopping her from being herself. In asserting her freedom, in reaching out and taking the fruit, she asserts herself as an autonomous, free individual. That's very different from the being that she has been created as by God, a being dependent upon him and subject to the moral shape of the world in which he has placed her. He's given her a special status, but she will flourish in God's world by knowing that status and acting accordingly. She's not having any of that. She will assert her freedom at this point. She, thirdly, has become the one who is arbiter of good and evil. We might say, Eve has become God in Eve's universe. And isn't that expressive individualism? The expressive individual considers themselves to be God in their universe. The transgender person is God in their universe. I am God in my own universe to the extent that I allow my view of reality to be driven and shaped by my desires and my actions to be shaped by my desires. It's an assertion of identity. Were her desire for God, her identity would be sound. Her desire, of course, is foundational to who she is. And if her desire was for God, then her desire and her actions built thereon would be sound relative to who she really is. Instead, she's breaking. She's breaking that. Her loss of the sense of being made in the image of God makes everything else into an object. And that applies particularly to other human beings. Genesis 4, the murder of Abel. Abel is but an object to Cain, albeit he's his brother. He's ultimately reduced to the level of an adversarial problem to be dispatched. He is dehumanized in Cain's eyes because the most important thing in Cain's life is Cain. Again, think of how much, how much of our world trains us to think of that. Think of pornography. What is pornography? Pornography teaches us to think of that act which was to be a unique bond between man and woman, binding the marking off a unique relationship between this man and this woman. Pornography teaches us to think of sexual activity as something designed for our benefit. The people on the screen exist for the benefit of the watcher. They are objectified. They are dehumanized. They are turned from individuals for whom we should care because they are made in the image of God into mere bodies that are there for the satisfaction of the observer. That's an extreme case. But so often we think of others like that, don't we? Others exist for us to use to achieve our ends. Our modern imagination, of course, is who we are is determined by how we find our happiness as individuals. And the fulfillment of our desires, not our conformity to some image of God. That's the important thing. And that's shaped by the possibilities that society presents us with. We might say the range of options 
that the cultural ethos makes possible. We are the choice of the option within the cultural ethos that are made possible to us. And that brings me to part two, part two of this, okay? Desire becomes identity. How does sexual desire become the key desire? Well, again, there is uh, a genealogy here. There's a narrative. We could look at Marquis de Sade. We could look at Oscar Wilde. We could look at Sigmund Freud. Freud is the key man. Freud is the man who expresses the idea that human beings are fundamentally sexual in scientific idiom that's very, very plausible in the modern age. And he's the man who sees us as always driven by our sexual desires, shaped by our sexual desires from infancy. In other words, sex, sexual desire becomes who we are. And sex moves to a point of identity. Sex in ancient Greece, lots of homosexual sex went on. Nobody thought of themselves as gay because sex was something you did. Now sex is something you are. If a young person goes to their parents and says, Dad, I think I'm gay. That young person may not have had any sexual experience whatsoever. They're talking about their desires. They're talking about the direction, the orientation of their sexual desires. Sex has become identity. Again, very few people read Freud, but think about commercials. Commercials are built upon desire, not utility. We don't even sell soap powder on the basis strictly of utility today. We sell soap powder on the basis of the attractive people who happen to be using that brand, who have perfect families. We don't sell cars on the basis of fuel efficiency, unless we can also sell them on the basis of looking cool, buying into a certain kind of desirable lifestyle. And incidentally, the modern commercial industry, uh, one of the early pioneers of the modern commercial industry was a man called Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's sister's son. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who applied Sigmund Freud's ideas about psychology and desire to selling stuff. It works. We'd much rather buy something because it fulfills a desire than it meets some kind of utilitarian need. And therefore, commercials teach us, train us, create desires, offer the promise of satisfying desires. And many of them are sexual, of course. Buy this car and you'll be successful with women. Buy this product and you will look so cool. Buy this product, you will become more desirable to others and therefore you will be able to fulfill your desires. And then there's the mainstreaming of pornography. Already talked about that a bit. I say pornography in some ways is an extreme example of expressive individualism, where the other the other person is reduced to an object for me to use for my own pleasure. And the same applies to the hookup culture. What is the hookup culture? The hookup culture is not interested really in a long-term sacrificial relationship with the other person. Hookup culture is uh, connected to the immediate satisfaction of my sexual desires. Politics, God has bought into this since the 1930s. There's been a move on the left to see oppression. Not so much in economic categories as it would have been for my grandfather, you know, where oppression was not being able to get a job, not being get paid fairly for the job you did. Oppression has become more and more repression, not being able to express yourself, not being able to express yourself specifically in sexual ways. That's why from the late 1960s onwards, uh, the gay movement, now the LGBTQ movement has become so powerful because inhibiting 
people's sexual activity, having strict sexual codes, that's, those aren't codes about behavior anymore. They're codes about identity, about who you are and are not allowed to be. And all of these things in our culture, I think, play to a, an anthropological truth that we really find. We find it in world literature, we find it in the Bible. And that's sexual desire is a powerful part of what human beings are. Think about world literature, think about the Iliad. What is the Iliad? The Iliad is an epic poem about a guy who runs off with another guy's wife because he can't control his sexual appetites and it leads to a 10-year war and major heroic conflict outside the city of Troy. So much of the world's literature is preoccupied with sexual desire. Anna Karenina, that great 19th century novel, great example of that. If we're honest, human beings tilt towards the erotic. Well, why? Well, I'd want to say the Bible provides an answer to that. The image of God. Well, who is God? God is, in his very being, fruitful and creative. He eternally generates the sun. The spirit eternally proceeds. God is, in his own being, dynamic, fruitfulness. In creation, God is the creator God. He creates. Human beings made in the image of God, we are creative. And the way we are most creative is the miracle of bringing new life into the world via, of course, it had prior to technology, which had to be done the old fashioned way via sexual intercourse. Our sexual desires, I think, connect to us being made in the image of God. That's one of the reasons why they're so powerful. And in a fallen world, it's why they're so powerfully disordered. The biggest marring of the image of God is surely the marring of the relationship between the man and the woman and the sexual dynamics of that relationship. So that, I think, is one of the reasons why sexual desire stands at the heart of desire's identity. And again, we see this in the Bible. Think of 2 Samuel 11. I'll read you the passage, a famous passage. It's the, it's the fall of David. It's the, the moment where David's kingdom falls into crisis. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is there not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Very, very famous story. Notice. Notice some of the dynamics of this story. Notice the role of aesthetics. He saw that she was very beautiful. And he took her. As with Genesis 3, aesthetics. And desire divorced from any larger ethical context. Even when he discovers she's the wife of Uriah. That's not enough to stop him at this point. Still, he continues with his madness. Secondly, notice the complete depersonalization of Bathsheba. He saw a woman. The woman was very beautiful. He inquired about the woman. The woman conceived. She's an object to him. The writer is trying to make the point that any beautiful woman will do. She's just a beautiful woman who happens to be married to somebody else. 
making her perhaps even more desirable. David's not interested in her in a person, as an individual. She's a woman, a beautiful woman. She's an object to him. She has no personal identity. She's an instrument for David's use, for David's happiness. Next time I think she's identified by name is, or is as the wife of Uriah after David has had him murdered. Then we're reminded she's an individual. There's a human tragedy here. Uriah. When Uriah pops onto the, uh, the scene, what is he? He's just a problem to be dealt with. Remember I said expressive individual tilts us towards thinking of others as problems, as potential obstructions to our happiness. That's exactly what Uriah is in this story. He's a threat to David's happiness. And notice he's also a remarkable contrast to David. Uriah sacrifices his personal happiness for duty. For duty. And notice also David took her just as Eve took the apple. That connects back, of course, to 1 Samuel 8. When you think about 1 Samuel 8, we have there the prediction of really, when you read it, it's Saul, but tragically, it's also David. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. They're asking for it. They're asking to change their identity. They no longer want to be the people for whom the Lord is their king. They want a king of their own, like the other nations. They want to change their identity. These will be the ways the king will reign over you, he told the people of Israel. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen uh, and, appoint, uh, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and some to reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out to your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in your day. You have chosen not to be the Lord's people. You still are, but the Lord's going to act as if you're not. You've chosen your identity. Now you can live with it. That's what the Lord's saying. What's being set up in Genesis 3, I think, finds its most dramatic narrative manifestation in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 11. David ceases in some ways to be king at that point. He's still king in name, but the kingdom plunges into crisis. At that moment, of course, he isn't the king. He's the one identifying himself with his uncontrolled sexual desire. And notice he's a paradigm of us all. He's one who sees himself as sovereign, and uses that sovereignty to take as he sees fit, which is exactly the modern self, with no concern for any greater authority or any consequences. All of this is to say that one's inner space and desire are authorised as the most important things guiding our behaviour, and thus our relationship with the world and those around us, desire becomes identity, and the tilt of fallen human nature will be towards sexual desire. And that is easily fueled by wider cultural factors. And as the narratives of even David show, that is fundamental because it detaches human beings from the God in whose image they are made and to whose image they are to conform if they are to be truly human and truly flourish. And that brings me to part three. There are certain consequences that flow from this. The first 
consequence is this. Do not be deceived into thinking that the changes in sexual codes going on in our society are trivial. Changes in sexual codes are fundamental. Freud is right on that point. When a, when a society changes its sexual codes, it's not like changing its basic rate of income tax from 20% to 25%, as painful as those changes are. When society changes its sexual codes, it's changing itself at its deepest level. Politically, it's not like a change in income tax. Socially, it's not like altering the acceptable age for drinking alcohol from 21 to 18. Religiously, within the church, it's not like changing the hymn book or the Bible translation. It goes to the heart of the polis, the heart of what it means to be a political animal, to be a social political animal. It goes to the heart of what it means to be a member of society. It goes to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Of course, one might respond by saying, society is always socially shaped. And yes, and there, and I think, lies our answer. What do we do as a result of this? I think there are a number of things that as a church, we need to be addressing. In some ways, we need to not focus so much on what's going on out there. We can have little impact on that. doesn't matter how many people you scream out on Twitter. You're not going to persuade them if you're screaming at them. What we can do is have an impact in our local churches. What do we need to do then in our local churches? Well, I'm a big believer that the church can be thought of as a culture defined by creed, code, and cult. Let's do creed first. Creed, we need to make sure that our people are taught the whole counsel of God. We need to be taught a solid doctrine of creation. I'm not talking so much here about the timetabling of creation. I mean what it means for human beings to be created in the image of God. What joys and freedoms that brings, what obligations it brings in its wake. How it makes us not free and autonomous, but those who have obligations to God and to others made in his image. Catechesis and a thorough catechizing in a doctrine of creation means that we don't have to produce answers to every specific problem that pops up. In my circles, in Presbyterian circles, occasional helium, do we need a chapter in the Westminster Confession on gay marriage? No, because the Westminster Confession is very clear in its positive teaching of marriage. We might need a denominational paper helping mass pastors think through the issue here and now, but Gay marriage is excluded by the positive teaching on marriage in the Westminster Confession. If you teach people what marriage is, then it's obvious to them, or should be obvious to them, what it is not. Liturgical. We need to make sure that our worship services, the, the cult part of Creed Code cult, teaches us what it means, reflects what it means, enacts what it means to be human beings made in the image of God. We should sing songs that speak of our experience, real experience on earth, and connected to our dependence upon God as our creator. The sing of the fall and of the redemption and of the consummation to come. We need to make sure that our liturgy reinforces among congregants our identity as Christians. One might say it's not just the preaching that should give the gospel. The rhythm of the service should give the gospel as well. The very movement of the service should be reminding us ritually of who we are. And community, we need to focus on the community in which we live in. If the identity is socially formed, then the societies we belong to, the little local societies, primarily the church we belong to, is critical. That 
A strong church community will give us a strong Christian identity. We should have a church where strong marriages are obvious, where young people witnesses witness strong functional marriages, where they realise that sexual codes are there for a reason, that they're not there to inhibit human happiness, but to enhance and promote human happiness and well-being. The communities in which we belong, the church community needs to be alive and vibrant and embody and take seriously biblical teaching on these issues. I want to end with a quotation, actually not from a Presbyterian and not from a, an evangelical free churcher, but oddly enough from a, a Russian Orthodox thinker, a man called Sergei Bulgakov. Bulgakov, in the foreword to his great work of Christology, The Lamb of God, draws on the image of Genesis 3 when he's thinking about the world in which he lives. And Bulgakov's world, of course, is the world that's being torn apart by Soviet communism. He says this, drawing on that language, a question slithers like a serpent over the earth. Whose world is it? The God-man's or the man-God's? Christ's or the Antichrist's? Well, I think the world has given its answer. It is the man-gods. Man is the measure of all things. Man can bend this world to his will because it is just stuff. The challenge for the church, by its teaching, by its worship, and by its way of life, is to show her people first and the world second that it is the God-man's. Thank you.